Welcome back, everybody, to the Below Average Joe's MMA podcast, episode number 104. It's Wednesday. That means we're here with another episode that's just a bit extra special because this time it's another edition in a series we love called The State Of. But today's episode of The State Of is The Ultimate Fighter. The Ultimate Fighter coming back literally after we're recording this. As we're speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's very relevant right now. And um, for a lot of newer fans, including people like myself, you know, that have only kind of gotten into the UFC over the last few years, a lot of us, we might not be too aware of kind of why at least when we first start out, you know, by this point I do. But for a lot of you newer fans, you might not know kind of why this show uh, matters so much or why people make such a big deal about it, you know, especially if you're just watching a lot of these later seasons. But if you just listen to one interview with Dana White, you see the passion and love that the people that make the decisions for the UFC have for this concept, for this show. And that's the reason why it's coming back. And honestly, Kind of much to my surprise, not a whole lot of changes being made at all. They really want to stick to the 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 basics of what this show is supposed to be, and I kind of respect it for that. Oh, yeah, 100%, man. And we're going to touch on season one and how impactful it was in just a second. But, yeah, this show, just reality TV, especially these days, it's not as popular as it once was. Back in 05 yeah. when it first started, man, it was like all you could watch on TV. Right. But it was so unique because it was about fighting, man. And that's what made it so special. And what it came to be is honestly something that, well, that's the whole point of this episode to talk about some of the highs, the lows, everything in between about the ultimate fighter. But first Noah, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Uh, we're coming off a holiday weekend. Um, just wanted to show some love to all of our veterans, those that are with us and those that are not Memorial day. Uh, was was it Sunday or Monday? What Monday. day is technically Monday was Memorial Day. Yeah. Um, so we got off Monday. So um, I grilled out a little bit Monday. Um, good time with some friends. Did, really just did the same thing I do every weekend. A little bit of porch drinking. Right. Uh, still yeah. shout out to all my porch drinkers out there. But uh, just did a little porch drinking, but I just got to do it an extra day. It was great. Right, right. But, Dominic, how was uh, your holiday weekend? It sounds like you uh, got into some fun little stuff. Huh? My friend, I went into the wilderness. <laughs> Dominic Salee took a trip to uh, camp for the very first time that I've ever done a, trampi- a, a camping trip. Uh, slept in a tent for two nights mm. with some family, and it was just a really nice break. You know, no f- texting and no social media away from the internet just be out there with family around a fire eat some good food hike around go fishing all that fun Mm -hmm. stuff it was a really nice reset for the long weekend uh but i missed you i missed the podcast all of our viewers all of our listeners so it's good to be back on this special episode wednesday and we've got a fun one in store we do and you know what i missed you too my friend and i'm (laughs) glad to hear that you got to experience that was it anything like uh the Leonardo DiCaprio classic, The Revenant. Did you run into any bears out there? Did you have to fight off a bear from the camp? No, me camping is more like Michael Scott from that episode in The Office. <laughs> that, that was what it was, to be honest uh, with you. You always uh, find a way to slip in those office references, don't you? I do. I mean, the, the blankets back here in the background and everything, you know it was coming. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm no uh, Leonardo DiCaprio from The Revenant. 
I'm a Michael Scott type of camper. I didn't need any uh, mushrooms though. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bright side there. Yes. Yes. But uh, for those of you that aren't aware kind of what this series is, the state of uh, we've done this three times now, or this is our fourth time, I should say. So the three previous episodes we had, we did one, our inaugural episode of the state of was about the men's flyweight division. Then we did one about Conor McGregor. And then we did the men's light heavyweight division after UFC 259 with Jan Blahovich being a big fixture on there. Uh, so go check those out if you haven't. But essentially, it's kind of a deep dive into the history of really anything involving MMA, um, whether it be a division, a fighter, uh, a rivalry, um, here, the ultimate fighter, a TV yeah. show, um, a promotion, you know, if we want to do a deep dive into Pride or strike force or the ufc in general like it's literally as big or as small scaled as we want it to be but what's important is that we have an understanding of kind of the history um why what makes it relevant today and then kind of the state of what where are we at with that right thing today um so i think that it's a really fun concept we've we've really enjoyed doing this we just kind of get lost talking about these oh. topics i mean just going on for hours but Today, we are doing the Ultimate Fighter, and I think this is a really good one for a lot of you who maybe uh, aren't too familiar with the show. Because, you know, to be honest, you know, for me, I've only seen a few seasons of the show. I know Dom has seen a few more than I have, but it's not like we are religious watchers of the Ultimate Fighter. But we just have a good understanding of kind of a lot of these big moments, a lot of these big rivalries, these obviously season one with the impact it had on the company. And really that's all you kind of need in order to understand why this show is still being brought back. You know, people are rolling their eyes. Why are we still doing the ultimate fighter? You have Tuesday night contender. You got Dana White looking for a fight. You don't need the ultimate fighter, yeah. but you, 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 once you kind of understand that, the the impact it had early on, you'll see why Dana White and at one time the Fertitas and stuff like that, why they would be so, hesitant to move on from it yeah i mean it's it's crazy because you look at it we're 28 normal seasons which is crazy Mm -hmm. dating all the way back to 2005 10 international versions of this versions of the show so that's 38 total seasons over the course of 16 years that's absolutely bonkers and here we are what two and a half year hiatus returning tonight as we're recording uh, obviously, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, they aired the first episode of last night, which we'll right. talk about. But, uh, man, it's just it's crazy to see where it came from. And obviously, it started January 17th, 2005, The Ultimate Fighter Season 1. A little tiny idea in the back room of the UFC headquarters turns into the saving grace of the company, man. It airs on Spike Television. Rest in peace to Spike Television. Now it's Paramount Network or something. Yeah, Pouring out. out for Spike TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but, man, it's just legendary. Where do you even begin with this season one? It's coached well, by Rady. Go ahead. Yeah, let me just kind of, if you want to start somewhere, let's start with kind of the concept was really, yeah. Dana has called it the UFC's Trojan horse, where essentially it was being pitched as a reality TV show. You know, you have all these fighters in a house. They have alcohol, you know, they're doing all these challenges, whatever. They're fighting to stay alive, all this stuff. But what was more important, what what really the UFC was trying to do was they were trying to get the product on television. Because at this time, 
the UFC, while it made a lot of a lot of leaps and bounds and growth in uh, the public eye, it was still kind of a black eye of uh, professional sports. It was True. still there was still that uh, that reputation of uh, human cockfighting and things like that. So it was important for Dana and the Fertitas to get the product on television. But what was popular at the time? Reality TV. I can say that as a kid. How old were we at the time, Dom? 2005? We uh, were eight? Uh, you're older than or, me. I was getting ready to turn seven. Or seven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I was seven by like, I had been seven for about five months at that point. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit older. Um, but yeah, so when this show, or reality TV was huge at the time. Me as a seven-year-old, I was watching VH1 all the time for shows like Rock of Love with Brett Michaels. Anybody? Yeah. Flavor? What was it? Or was it Flavor of Love or Fla- whatever? With Flavor Flav, uh, a shot of love, a shot at love with Tila Tequila. I was watching all of them, man. We're going on a whole other podcast, right? Yeah, now. I trust me. This might be something we might have to. This, we might have to do the state of reality dating shows or whatever because we'll make that a premium episode. Little seven-year-old me, I was loving that shit. Yeah. But I never watched The Ultimate Fighter. But this was the point of the show was to kind of – you have this Trojan horse. Hey, we have a reality TV show that you guys you guys love reality TV, right? But once you watch, you see these fights. You get to deep dive into these fighters' personalities, and it gets you kind of hooked on the product. And that and that mm-hmm. were, ended up being a big reason for the show's success and really why the show's success – ultimately led to the UFC having success from it. I mean, it was able to retain an audience. Yeah, that's a very good point. And the concept itself, you know, a tournament style. These dudes are in the house. I believe – I know this season that they just finished up recording, I think they were in the house for five weeks. So I think historically it's been kind of that four, five, six-week mark living Mm -hmm. in this house together, 16 guys and gals. Uh, Again, a tournament style thing. You're fighting – once every one and a half to two weeks, you got to cut this weight it, physically and mentally. The toll it probably took on fighters, I can't even imagine. Uh, then you take a little piece of some of this other reality TV stuff where you take away their phones, you cut off communication with the outside world. These fighters were literally eating, sleeping, training, fighting, repeat. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Your sole focus was to win, 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 <laughs> earn a contract, and make your way into the UFC. And that's what's unique too, taking these guys and girls away from reality, no communication, and they can solely just focus with these stud trainers and coaches that they have. You look at season one, for example, coaches like Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, two of the legends of the UFC. So they get to learn and grow so much over such a short amount of time while still taking that little piece from reality TV and sprinkling it in to dudes that are just fighters. You know, it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good point, and I guess there was no better way to kind of start that concept in season one. I mean, that's really where you get the majority of the show has kind of remained the same since season one. Obviously, there's been a few little changes here or there, but uh, really the concept that started it all is kind of where we are today. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and I mean, I remember, you know, I just watched season one pretty recently, and um, what kind of stuck out to me and what I imagine probably stuck out to a lot of viewers at the time was once you saw these fighters having to cut that weight, Bobby Southworth, I believe, had to cut 
before his first fight. It was like 30, 20 to 30 pounds. Yeah. And he had, what, 24 hours to do it? Something crazy. Yeah. And I mean, that's a crazy amount of weight to have to cut in that amount of time. They're so dragging him, him to the sauna. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see this guy just falling out. When they open the door, he's falling out of the sauna, like can't even move. Um, and I bet for a lot of viewers at home, that was shocking. It was like, wow, these fighters, what they go through, you know, what they put themselves through. But then you even had kind of the lighthearted side. You saw these guys, these fun personalities like Forrest Griffin, Chris Lieben became a fan favorite because of this show. Um, there was even some people that weren't too popular. Josh Koscheck being one of them. Um, he became, he kind of made a career off of being kind of the original bad Eel. guy. Yeah, really. I mean, he kind of was playing a character for a large part of his career because he didn't make the best impression on the audience in season one. Um, but, I mean, this sh- the season is just so memorable. It's probably the best season of the entire show, and it's yeah. the first one. I mean, they really nailed it on all cylinders. It was firing on all cylinders here. Well, and I'm glad you kind of brought that up. Um, this show does a good job at humanizing fighters you get to see more than just all oh, they're in the octagon punching somebody in the face you get to see what they're going through the cutting weight the training two times a day uh being away from their families how they're going to react to that and mentally how can they prepare just as much as physically because you know that's just as important so that's what's cool about this show 38 seasons in if you count the internationals um <laughs> is that you get to see the fighters you know they always do their little stories kind of like the contender series does where you see where they came from, but even more so on the ultimate fighter, you get to see how they interact with others, how they are as a genuine human being. And I think that just allows people watching at home to connect more and enjoy the show more, uh, become a fan of the sport more because you know, these guys aren't just barbaric human beings. They're humans at the end of the day, trying to make a living, but they're doing it at our expense for entertainment, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about kind of that finale fight between Bonner and uh, Forrest Griffin a little bit more. It's in my top moments. It's like the first thing we'll talk about. Yeah. But still, that finale, man, to this day, essentially saved the company. And you talk about mm-hmm. this all the time, and you'll touch on it more, I'm sure. Up until that fight happened, Dana had spoken on how he was a little hesitant, like, oh, these fights aren't going as great as I wish they would have. Then all of a sudden, Griffin and Bonner happens, and the freaking Spike TV calls mid-show and says, Dana, season two, book it right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, when it comes to the finale, you're right. So the the first official winner of The Ultimate Fighter is Diego Sanchez, someone who's kind of been making a lot of the headlines lately, not for the best reasons, but – um, he was the original Ultimate Fighter winner, and he did it by literally stomping, steamrolling poor Kenny Florian. And because the fight was kind of a dud because it was so one-sided, Dana was like, oh, man, that's not the kind of fight that's going to get us a season two. Because it was literally – I mean, and he, it, by all accounts, he's not even – there's no hyperbole here. I mean, he Dana literally this – this finale was going to determine if they brought it back for a season two. It was – that's not really just for theatrics. I mean, that's literally what the situation the UFC was in. They were not guaranteed to get another season. And if they didn't get another season, UFC's done. Every last dollar yep. that the Fertitas were going to put in was put into the show. That's why it was so important that it succeeded. So 
that first fight not going too well. I mean, just being so one-sided. Then you got Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner who come in. And again, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more later, but the fight was just so – it was everything you could have wanted. I mean, it was two guys who went through this five or six weeks of hell where they were you know, they were cutting weight multiple times, having to fight multiple times. Um, you know, they were – closed off from the outside world, just having to live amongst each other uh, just for a chance to fight in the big leagues. And now they're here at the finale. They have, if you win this, you get that contract, that six figure contract to uh, fight in the UFC. And, and Harley Davidson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I, I forgot about that. And uh, you see these guys literally push each other to the brink. I mean, they, they beat the shit out of each other for three rounds. It was incredible to watch. It's, it's a war. Two guys that just wanted it so bad. And they both end up getting it. I mean, Forrest Griffin yeah. edges out the scorecards. He gets the contract. But then Dana gets on the mic, and it's like a movie. It's like a Hollywood movie. And you, if you saw this in a movie, you would go, this is kind of cheesy. Like, this would never right. happen. But he gets on the mic. He's like, we're going to give Stephen Bonner a six-figure contract, too. The and crowd it's just goes like, nuts, dude. Yeah, Bruce people Buffer. Are, Went crazy in the octagon, throwing his fist up in the air. Just awesome. So much emotions. I mean, even if, you know, and what kind of happened is when this fight started, and this is before social media, right? So it's not like the Ultimate Fighter was trending on Twitter. Basically, the fight started, and it was so good that people were calling their friends and were like, hey, you need to turn on Spike TV. Uh, this, This fight's awesome. And basically, the ratings spiked. <laughs> kind of a funny pun there. They <laughs> spiked so much during this fight that it's what convinced Spike TV to bring it back for a season two. And I mean, even if that hadn't happened and the ratings didn't spike, anybody who was in the audience this night, the fighters involved, everybody who worked for the company, they all knew that they saw something special this night. But as you're right, Literally right after the fight, and what's funny is the main event ended up being a a uh, Hall of Famers versus Hall of Famer fight. Rich yeah. Franklin beat Ken Shamrock, fight that nobody talks about, um, and it got overshadowed by two guys who had never fought in a company before. And that's not a knock on Ken and Rich. That's just how good of a fight this co-main was. But directly following the finale – the Spike TV executives took Dana and the Fertitas out into the – they were in like a, a alleyway of uh, by some casino and had them sign the contract for season two in the alleyway. Uh, just so crazy, but it's literally what saved the company, and that's not, that's not hyperbole. Yeah, it's truly historical by all accounts. We're going to touch on that fight at least a little bit more later in the top moments portion, but you can't not talk about it now as we discuss – season one. And uh, I mean, truthfully, you look at all the people that came off of that, not even the winners in Forrest and Diego, but you had Stefan Bonner, Kenny, Kenny Florian. Look what he's doing now. Commentary with the PFL guys like Josh Koscheck went on to fight for titles. Um, Mike, Mike Swick, Swick has a huge podcast in the MMA mm-hmm. world with all kinds of fighters. And uh, Chris Lieben, like you said, a fan favorite. Welcome to Anderson Silva to the UFC. He just had a retirement fight earlier this year in bare knuckle FC we're talking 16 (laughs) years later and there's still so many prominent names from that original season it's historical on many accounts the OG season 
So, of course, we're going to have to shine more light on that more so than all these other seasons. It's just because there's too many damn seasons to talk about. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anything else from you, my friend, on season one? No, not really. I mean, it's it's just – it's so interesting to me how this show – you know, when you have these guys that are executives, right, Dana White, the Fertitta brothers, um, you would expect that they don't really get that kind of emotional attachment to the product that much. You know, you would think that's right. all about the money, right? But with the, with the Ultimate Fighter, it's so crazy to me how, like – by most accounts, I mean the Ultimate Fighter is not necessarily a huge money-making machine anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have saved the company, but especially when they because it went away for a couple of years, that's why it's coming back now. Right. Um, by the end, I mean nobody was really watching it. Couldn't have been making that much money, but they still come back to it time and time again as a way to find new talent. Even when you yeah. have these other avenues now. For finding new talent, T- Tuesday night contender, uh, Dana White looking for a fight, arguably or maybe better concepts for today's kind of day and age, but they refuse to let go of the ultimate fighter. And maybe that's for better or worse. I'm not here to say that that's a good or bad thing. I just, something about that kind of, kind of, it kind of hits me in the feels a little bit that these, these suits, you know, these, these executives can be, have such an emotional attachment to a concept that literally saved everything for them. Yeah. It really puts it into perspective, just how truly special that first season and all the way Mm -hmm. through to season 28, how special it is to that company, Dana White, all the higher ups, man. And uh, here we are again, right now, as we speak, season 29 has begun. So it's crazy how it started back then, where it's came today and everything in between. But I guess that's what this episode's for, huh? Yeah. So we're going to break this down into portions. Now, for those of you that have listened to other state ofs in the past, we kind of just go and go and go and just all the way to present day. This one being that there's so many seasons, so many fights. I mean, we're talking hundreds of fights. We can't talk about all of that unless you want to be here for a five hour podcast. So we essentially (laughs) went in, we're going to break this down into some segments. So we've got top coach rivalries. We're going to just touch on some of those, not even necessarily their seasons, but just the rivalry in general between the two coaches. We're going to discuss some of the top moments, whether it's funny, crazy, everything in between. Go on to the champions that have came from the show. And then, as Noah mentioned, finish off with just our thoughts on this reboot starting up with season 29. Um, So first off, top coaching rivalries. Mm -hmm. Like I said, season one started with um, Couture and Chuck Liddell, which not like a heated hatred rivalry, but you still look at how this fight guys fought multiple times, always for the belt, always in in KO, TKOs, just crazy. Now, I didn't mention it on here because there wasn't much heat behind it. We got to shout out the OGs. But the yeah. first actual rivalry, Noah, Tito Ortiz versus Ken Shamrock, season three of The Ultimate Fighter. Mm-hmm. If there's ever a rivalry to talk about, it's this one right here. This is one of the biggest rivalries in UFC history. You've got Tito Ortiz on your UFC Mount Rushmore, man. You just you let the people know how important this rivalry is to the company as a whole, really. Yeah, it carried the company in a lot of ways during those kind of dark ages where um, even around the time that the Fertitas and Dana White got involved with the UFC around UFC 33, 
this rivalry was basically what was carrying it. And it, it started with Tito versus the Lions then, which is the the training, um, the camp that uh, Ken Shamrock was the leader of. Um, you know, uh, Tito had fought uh, Ken's brother, Frank Shamrock. He had fought Jerry Bolander, I'm pretty sure, who was in the Lions then. Uh, Guy Mesger. Um, so he had really been, even before the uh, Zufa got involved with the UFC, you know, Tito had been fighting all these guys from that camp and really getting in some, some nasty spats. Oh, yeah. And that's what led into this rivalry being kind of born between him and Ken. Um, they did fight three times. Tito won all three of them. But it, in a lot of ways early on, this rivalry did kind of carry the company. It's it's what the company kind of put all their their marbles in. Yeah, and eventually, in yeah, and eventually Tito would become more, I guess, known for his rivalry with Chuck Liddell, which also carried the company for a time. Um, which is why I kind of stand by Tito having that big of an impact on the company's history. Is I mean, right. two of the most defining rivalries he had a hand in. Um, but at this, uh, at when it comes to this season, what I find interesting is a lot of these rivalries we're going to talk about were born on the show, or were at least revealed on the show to a greater extent. You know, people didn't really know that these that a lot of these coaches were rivals until they were actually facing off on this show, but this right. is one where the rivalry preceded the actual oh. season. And it honestly kind of, it, it kind of, I think that might've been for a good reason too, because I stand by that the, even though it, it might not be for the casual fan for me, this show is at its best when it is putting that kind of magnifying glass on the actual talent on the show. The coaches, I get it. They're important. They're there. They're the big stars in the UFC. But they should not be overtaking the camera time from the talent. 100%. This is a this is a way to kind of expose the UFC audience to these new fighters, get them to know their stories. And you, if you have coaches that are kind of hogging the camera or kind of in it for that reason um, – it to me never really came off very well in the show. So for this rivalry, I think that kind of worked. And I'm not saying that these two guys are necessarily uh, the most selfless of individuals. Uh, Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock, I'm sure, loved having the camera on them every chance they could get. But since you already had, you already knew the rivalry. They had already fought, I believe, yeah. once or twice before this season. And because of that, you could focus more on the fighters because. You already, I mean, you've already seen them at press conferences get into each other's face. Uh, when Ken kicked the chair straight up in the air and Dana caught it, hilarious. <laughs> That's WWE the, stuff. Yeah, had the Undertaker lighting going on. I don't yeah. know what was going on there. Um, but because of that, you got to highlight more of these fighters because it's like, okay, we know the rivalry. You know, we don't we don't have to focus as much on it as maybe seasons like Bisping versus Henderson where, right. and I'm not saying that the season's bad. I, I honestly don't know. I'm just saying that that's a season where the coach's rivalry was kind of planted in the show and then it grew from there. Um, but that might've been to the detriment of kind of getting more of that face camera time to some of the talent involved in that season. Well, funny enough, I'm actually glad you brought up Henderson and Bisping because that's next up on the coaches' <laughs> rivalry section. 
Dan Henderson, Michael Bisbing, this was the first really unique season where we see Team United States, which is, of course, Dan Henderson, versus Team United Kingdom led by Michael Bisbing. Those were the two coaches. This was season nine, the first time we had seen anything like this. Of course, we went on to see other countries battled out in certain seasons, um, battle the nations like Australia had one that rock, or ultimate smashes, I think is what they called it. Well, we even saw the Black Zillions versus American top team. So we've mm-hmm. seen teams or countries against each other, but this was the first time. And it was so unique because, I, like you said, Henderson and Bisbing, no real hatred here between the two. And also what's neat about this one is that Bisbing was an Ultimate Fighter winner season three, if I'm not mistaken, with Tito and Ken. So he mm-hmm. comes back now in season nine to coach against the season vet and Dan Henderson who had been there and done that already, which is crazy to think of because he went on to fight so many more times. But this rivalry brewed during the season. And like you said, maybe that does take away some shine from the athletes. Maybe it just adds a little more flavor to the show. But it turns out Dan Henderson, he's not one to shit talk much anyway. But Bisping, (laughs) he's going to let you know how he feels at all times. He's going to be cocky. And it just brewed and brewed and brewed. But Henderson never let it really get to him during the show. But boy, oh boy, when they met to fight and the coaches clash at the end of the season, uh, UFC 100, crazy enough, these two Mm -hmm. guys. And Noah, we know what happened. The Hendo bomb from hell (laughs) that that nearly ended Michael Bisping. Uh, Yeah, you're you're right. Um, I don't want to pretend like every time you know, with these coaches' rivalries that, like, it always, you know, a lot of times it could heighten, it could improve upon kind of the the overall viewing experience when you're talking about being exposed to this new, these new talent, these new fighters. Um, if the rivalry could get heated enough to where even the their fighters are getting involved in it, that actually right. improves, that helps everybody. Yeah. Um, and this is a season where I think that, that had that, um, the whole concept of kind of, countries colliding you know there was that pride in where you come from and you know the uk has totally been a very it's it's always been a very underutilized market of mma i mean very they're very passionate fans but they tend to get the short end of the stick a lot that's kind of been starting to change a little bit but i mean even when you're talking about like pay-per-view times these guys have to stay up till five (laughs) six in the morning to watch events they got it tough yeah, it's crazy. So because of that, you have a lot of these fighters on here who have that history in, built into them, and they're like, I'm going to beat these guys' asses because they're the Americans. They they get all the all the fights. They get all the all the, the pay-per-view times are always to help them, you know, make sure they're watching and stuff. So um, it, it did lead to a little bit of that back and forth. And obviously Michael Bisping at this time, man, I love Michael Bisping now. I, I do. I, I love the guy. I think he's a great commentator, a great fighter. Um, just seems like a good person. At this time, man, there's not a fighter in this world I hate more than this time period, Michael Bisping. He is so good at what he does. Yeah. But, man, do I hate it. I Everybody hate every hated Bisping, man. Everybody. It's crazy. It's crazy how he – somewhere along the way became such a fan favorite. Yeah. If you watch this season, oh my God, that guy, there's no way that he would ever become a fan favorite, but somehow, some way, man. Hey, even people from the UK were happy when Hendo landed that right hook. <laughs> yeah. That's how it was crazy. 
have we ever seen a guy that was such a heel, not a heel on purpose, but just a guy that talks so much shit that no one liked, flip a switch, fan favorite. He's on the commentary team now. I mean, the story of Michael Bisbing in itself is its own podcast episode. Dude. Yeah, it's true. That's true. And it's, yeah. Well, and it's crazy because when we talk about this rivalry, they fight at UFC 100. You think, oh, Dan Henderson destroys him. What are we ever going to see again? Fast forward so many years down the line, yeah. Michael Bisbing becomes the middleweight champion of the world, shocks the world when he beats Luke Rockhold, then defends his title in the United Kingdom against like a 43-year-old Dan Henderson, who is ranked 13th at the time. They have a five-round war, and yeah. Bisbing gets his revenge. Who would have ever thought that in season nine, those guys are going to have this long, drawn-out history together? Yeah, uh, it's just crazy. One of the most improbable title fights of all time. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure if we were doing this podcast at the time, we might not have spoken as highly about it as we do now. But the fight lived up. That's all that really matters, right? <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, but honestly, it's a rivalry that still hangs on today. If you go on oh, Twitter, yeah. uh, Dan Henderson, when he started uh, chirping at Michael Bisping about his commentary, and then Michael just laid into him. Yeah, that's all you remember dude. that. That was like a year ago. You know, these two, we thought they squashed it after the second fight. You know, ah. this being one, but he was like, hey, look what Dan did to my face. Give this man a round of applause and stuff. And you thought, okay, you know, beef squashed, right? That's what everybody loves, a happy ending. Nope. On Twitter, these two were going at it. <laughs> it was uh, just shows that uh, some some rivalries never die, Dom. It never fails, man. And then you go – one season later, season 10, we're hitting double digits. Mm-hmm. Quentin Rampage Jackson at this time, one of the biggest stars in the UFC and mixed martial arts as a whole, taking on Sugar Rashad Evans, season two winner of the Ultimate Fighter. So back-to-back seasons here where we've got winners coming in as coaches. And, man, these boys, they had good fun with each other, good, friendly, fun banter. But I was just watching some clips the other day on YouTube because the UFC is obviously promoting the hell out of the Ultimate Fighter right now. And these two, although it was playful, like just joshing with each other, they ended up just hating each other. And it was just, it was so much that it just became a true rivalry, a true hatred. Rampage Jackson, Rashad Evans going, of course, to fight for the title as well after this season. Another moment of the season that we're going to, well, two moments from this season we'll touch on later. But Rampage gets pretty mad, takes down a door maybe. We've got big names in big country, Roy Nelson, that come on, Brendan Schaub, uh, even Kimbo Slice, who we'll talk about a little bit more in the top moments part. But, yeah, man, I mean, Rampage Jackson, Rashad Evans, in terms of a rivalry, at least from what you can remember, what are your kind of thoughts on those two boys slinging leather with one another? Yeah, so I I think I'm going to upset some people here, but uh, I think this is one of the more overrated um, seasons Ooh. of the show um, because a lot of what I've been talking about here has kind of been shots at this season. Uh, this is a season where the coaches totally are, you know, they're, oh, they're yeah. the one. It's all Rashad and, and Rampage. And I'm not going to lie, if you watch it, it's so entertaining. Here for the drama, right? <laughs> but what this show is supposed to be, and I hate to be this kind of stickler, but it's supposed to be exposing the UFC audience to the new talent. And they are the ones that kind of got – now, you do have some – what's crazy is you do, do have these guys that came, went on to be stars like 
I mean, Kimbo Slice was already a star when he came on the show, but Roy Nelson became a star. Brendan Shaw oh, yeah. is probably had one of the best transitions from professional fighter to uh, everything he's doing now. He's a stand-up comedian. He's got a million podcasts. He works for Showtime a lot. Um, so shout out to him. But yeah. a lot of that was started in this season. But really, those guys, I mean, they kind of didn't get all that much uh, screen time. These two coaches, man, they, they hated each other so much, and their, their shit talk was so entertaining you couldn't take the cameras off of them. Yeah. I think that was kind of to the detriment of what this show is supposed to be. And the other reason why I think this is uh, overrated is ultimately their fight ended up being pretty bad. <laughs> um, ended up being a pretty boring fight overall. You have this blood, hate, rivalry. Yeah. And then it ended up being Rashad just kind of laying on uh, Rampage for five rounds. Not Just not really kind of how you want a, a blood rivalry to be resolved. But, you know, for what it was uh, – entertaining but i still say a little overrated maybe i'm just throwing out Ooh. some hot takes in this episode it's just uh, and that might not be the episode for it but i'm still gonna put it out there anyways hey i like it i like it hey another huge rivalry we're going from season 10 to season 18 my oh my no we've got our first female-led season in terms of coaches ronda rousey misha tate to this day got to be the biggest female MMA rivalry of all time. These yeah. two cannot stand each other. Yeah, he, Ronda breaks Misha's arm in their first fight in strike force. Damn near snaps it in half again <laughs> in the rematch here. Obviously, these two go on to fight for the title at the end of the season. And even, uh, again, back to these clips that have been coming out recently, uh, the coaches' challenge for this season, uh, season 18, they did a rock climbing competition. And they go all the way up that huge, like, 100-foot mountain. And uh, Rhonda comes from behind and beats Misha Tate. And as she's going down, she's just flipping Misha the bird the whole time. Rhonda <laughs> let Misha have it. And while Misha wasn't quite the trash talker that Rhonda was and tried to, you know, turn the other cheek, be the more professional, quote-unquote, if you will, Rhonda just got to her so much so that she would even have to jab her jaw back because Rhonda was yeah. so good at this time at just getting in her opponent's heads. And really, it's something I'm going to touch on in a second, but Joanna young Jacek really took a page out of Rhonda's book in terms of the mental warfare side of things, especially for female MMA. Rhonda Rousey was the queen at this time. Well, is there is it any surprise that the first female-led Ultimate Fighter season had Rhonda Rousey in it? I mean, right. Again, this is what's crazy is we're we're starting to slowly kind of go into an era of fans that aren't even aware of how good Ronda Rousey was. Isn't that you crazy? Know, it's crazy how kind of quick it was, even though it felt like it was everything in the sport. I mean, Ronda and Conor McGregor coming up at the same time, it felt like such a long period of time, but Ronda Mania lasted all of what, like three years? A few years, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of a small part of the history in hindsight, but boy, did she leave an impact. And then she's the whole reason that women's MMA came to the UFC at the time yep. that it did. I'd like to think by now we would have women's MMA in the UFC. But again, it wouldn't have happened when it did. And that's what's important because that's getting those women in here that early is why we have – women as dominant as Valentina Shevchenko and Amanda Nunes. For all we know, 
if if we don't get the women in the UFC at that time, then Valentina and Amanda aren't ever quite as dominant as they are because they, you know, being exposed to better camps and better, um, you know, the whole UFC machine being able to expose them to a lot of different, yeah, uh, and better methods and training and whatnot. So, um, definitely something to note there. But yeah, you're right. Her and Misha Tate. It was always Rhonda, whenever she would get into these kind of these, you know, even with Holly Holm and people like that, where she would just get so angry and just so vicious with them. And usually the it did never really make her look good because the other person was always just kind of standing there, not doing yeah. Much. Yeah. And for some reason, man, her she hated Misha Tate. And you never really saw much why because Misha did a very good job of playing coy on camera. Yes. Um, but you're right. They, she, Rhonda did not come off the best in this season. I'll be honest. I think this is kind of the first, uh, sign that maybe people were like, Ooh, maybe just Rhonda Rousey's not as, uh, not as much of a, I don't know which, what people would have said, not as much of a role model. Yeah. Or as I want her to be, whatever. Um, but you know, it was just like the first sign of like, hmm, maybe maybe Rhonda's not as great as we think she is. Um, so that's worth noting. Yeah, and it's funny you actually bring that up because when you look at their second fight, the fight that proceeded this season for the title, when Rhonda inevitably submits Misha Tate, Misha gets up, tries to shake Rhonda's hand. Rhonda just yeah. turns her back, turns yeah. her back away, goes to celebrate, and you're just <laughs> like, man. This Ronda Rousey girl is just on a different level. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. So I'm actually glad you brought that part up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next coach's rivalry. Now this one, not so much heat behind it necessarily, but just a, a random ass pairing that ended up just providing so much entertainment. And of course, when one half of it is Conor McGregor, there's going to be entertainment nevertheless. But season 22, we saw him up against Uriah Faber as the other coach. And again, while the hatred wasn't quite there with these two, there are some funny ass clips of these two (laughs) going back and forth with just making fun of each other. Just like some high school stuff that you would see. They'd laugh at one another, have a good time. Their coaches challenged. They were up in a, in a helicopter together talking trash to each other. And they had to drop watermelons onto uh, what's it called? A target that was laying on Mm -hmm. the ground. Uriah beats him there, and Connor's like, oh, we all know what's going to happen in the real fight. And this is one where, and Noah's going to love this, a pair of fighters here and coaches, we never saw the fight come to fruition in this season. Yeah, that's a good point, and that's one of my, I guess, and one of the people's, not just mine, but uh, one of people's negatives with the show is that not all the time did the coaches fight. And, as the show went on, it felt like more and more you didn't see the coaches fighting in, which was kind of the point. You know, the, that was sort of what you were expecting. And a lot of times it could have been for injury or right. whatever reason. But, you know, cases like this, the fight just never happened. I mean, Connor just kind of went on to do bigger and better things, and Uriah just kind of stagnated um, as a superstar. But as far as for this season in general, I mean, the. <laughs> 
the trash talk in this season's hilarious. It's I mean, so funny, man. And, and and that's and it's some of it's really good. You know, the Conor McGregor trash talk, usually yeah. very good stuff. But some of it is so cringy, it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I forget if it's David or Daniel Tamer um, from Sweden. So I believe he's from Sweden. Not a natural uh, English speaker. Yeah. Um, have you seen the trash talk he threw at Cody Garbrandt when they had the scuffle? Oh, uh, so I don't remember high- what he said to Cody. So one of the highlight moments of the season is um, uh, Connor's kind of jawing at Uriah. And um, is that when he – I forget how it kind of happened. but That's the snake in the grass. Yeah, so he calls that. It's the first moment he's like, oh, is TJ got Dwayne with him? Is he got Dwayne with him? Yeah, yeah. He's like, where's the snake? Where's that snake in the grass? Which – Planted the seeds for what would happen when TJ and Dwayne Ludwig would leave uh, Uriah and crew. But uh, basically, Cody Garbrandt ends up shoving Connor McGregor, and the teams get into kind of a bit of a, a scuffle. And then uh, I believe it's, I think it's Daniel Tamer. Uh, he ends up saying, He's like, You better check your underwear. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, Because I'm going yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, to fuck you, man. And uh, Cody Garbrandt's face, <laughs> and he says this. He's so serious when he yeah. says this. And you can tell that he's so pissed that Daniel Tamer just said this to him. And I, everybody else just started laughing, and it kind of just eased the tension in the room. But Cody Garbrandt was in kill mode. He was seeing red in that moment like he yeah. has in a couple of his losses. And I was like, man, that that, that moment sticks out to me as one of my favorite. Um, just pure comedy. It's like when Vanderlei Silva said, I want to – uh, fuck Chuck. That's kind of <laughs> yeah. like that moment there. So just like that awkward, that language barrier where it just turns yeah. into some awkward trash talk, but it's so funny. Now here is a really good season. I love season 23. So the very next season, Joanna Young Jacek, who I previously mentioned against Claudia Gadella. Now this was actually a huge rivalry at the time because they had fought once prior. Joanna got the decision victory in that one. Then they come in. This was for the title leading into their second fight. It was going to be for the title. This was when Joanna was, yes, the champion and becoming, getting that dominant label with her name. But this is where I feel Joanna really became a star during this season of the show. Her trash talk second to none. The mental warfare with Claudia, very good. But Claudia fires right back a lot of the time in this. Claudia is a very confident person and she's a great fighter we've seen it time and time again so the banter back and forth between these two well there was some funny stuff again probably more so for the language barrier this time for both it was more so serious uh in terms of just the hatred there and you could just feel the tension every time they were with one another and they ended up going on to have a a great uh, title fight there claudia even had her moments in the second fight Mm -hmm. uh but obviously joanna goes on to become and still defends the belt multiple times after this. And I truly do feel Joanna champion. Everybody loves Joanna these days. This is where that superstar really came out here was during the ultimate fighter. And I think she has this show to thank for some of her stardom, uh, at least what she sees, what she sees now. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I, I do think that in the history of the UFC, uh, how good Claudia Gedalia was is kind of forgotten a lot. And I yeah. think if you go and watch the season, you can see why she was such a threat to Joanna Champion at that time. 
Oh, yeah, man, and a physical freak of nature. She's still fighting to this day, ranked in the top ten. Who knows? We could even see a trilogy down the line with these two. But uh, I really love this season. A truly heated rivalry between two other female coaches. I had to bring that one up. And then the last notable coach rivalry rivalry before we get into the top moments, Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw. That seed mm-hmm. got planted in season 22, the snake in the grass. Cody defending TJ Dillashaw in that moment. You're talking shit about my teammate. I'm not going to let that happen. Pushes the mm-hmm. biggest star in the sport, Conor McGregor. This guy's got balls. Turns out everything Conor McGregor was talking about was true. And, man, Cody Garbrandt and TJ TJ Dillashaw hated each other. We're talking moments during this show. Cody gets so mad at TJ while they're all backstage. He goes up and grabs TJ Dillashaw by the throat, and all the teams had to come and separate each other. I mean, the hatred here was truly second to none in terms of coach rivalries. You look at they had two title fights against each other, both fights insane for the short time that they lasted. Cody nearly finishes TJ in both. But TJ takes the belt from Cody in the first one anyway, then defends it successfully for the first time. This rivalry, man, you want to talk about hatred. These two, probably one of the top three coach rivalries uh, in tough history right here. Yeah, at least at the time, especially. I mean, you know, this is much of when I was uh, becoming more and more passionate about the sport was during this time. And uh, this was a great time for – the Bantamweight division, even though it didn't seem like it. I mean, now we're in kind of a golden age of the Bantamweight division. But as far as star power, both of these guys elevated each other by simply hating one another. It's, yeah. And when you can do that, that's just – I mean, the story was built in that these guys were teammates turned rivals. I mean, come on. How how can you not – you know, TJ being kind of the heel that the guy who left his friends and his teammates to go with Dwayne and – he was the defector, you know, and Cody was, um, at least to some, I mean, everybody had their side in this rivalry. You know, we we tend to be more on Cody's side just hey, because right. of Ohio connection there. But overall, you know, if you, you either loved or hated both these guys. And uh, when a rivalry can really um, hit the fans in that way, that's when you know yeah. you got something good there. And the show, what's crazy is I don't feel like, in the history of their rivalry. I don't think this show this season really is ever really mentioned when you talk about this, these two's rivalry. I mean, yeah, maybe the clip of Cody going for the choke on TJ, that might be something that you'll see in some highlight tapes, but overall, like it felt like this season just kind of, this is again, this is at the tail end of the first run of the ultimate fighter. It felt like nobody was talking about this season, but everybody loved the rivalry. So, which is so interesting to me that it, it seemed like what these guys were saying about one another in interviews with Ariel Hawani or whoever was gaining more traction than when they were actually face to face for five weeks on the Ultimate Fighter. Kind of an interesting yeah, this note was, there. Yeah, this was kind of the perfect middle ground too, because you look at yeah, there were some rivalries like Tito and Ken where the hatred was already there before the show started but then it builds up even more during the show so it's just like the best of both worlds from a promotional standpoint we obviously know what went on between their two title fights it'll go down in bantamweight history the rivalry between those two yeah for sure So that's all i've got for the coaches rivalries noah 
But that means we get to talk about some fun little moments that have happened uh, throughout the show's history. Now, we've already kind of touched on some, so this probably won't take nearly as long. Mm -hmm. But number one of the top moments, it's Griffin Bonner. I have to put it on there because it's one of the greatest fights of all time. It's the fight that saved the company. We talked about it so much already, but of course, no, I just had to put it on for the top moment. Yeah, of course, it, it is the top moment. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's such a big moment that we couldn't wait, until, you know, 50 minutes to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. And these guys just really showed what it means to be a fighter. And it kind of segues into another portion from Tough One that's such a memorable moment. And that's Dana White's speech. So you want to be a fighter, man. Everybody remembers this speech, how he just went in on these dudes after there was so much shit going on between uh, the guys at the house, people just lackluster performances, being lazy at training and all this, Dana comes in into the gym and rips them a new one. And this speech to this day still remains so prominent in the history of not only the Ultimate Fighter as a show, but just the UFC as a whole and shows how much Dana – at the end of the day, truly does care about these fighters and what he wants them to become uh, as fighters in their promotion, you know? So uh, I might have a different take on this uh, speech. Uh, I love the speech. You know, it's, it's, it's hard not to get goosebumps when you hear it, you know. But um, what's, what's funny is the reason why that this speech even happened is uh, when all these fighters for season one signed on, to the show, they they were not told at least that this is what they claim, anyways. Um, I, I don't want to say whether they did or did. I don't know what the contract says, but these fighters were saying that they weren't told that they would be fighting for free on the show. Um, so because of that, a lot of guys were kind of pissed off about it, and that's where you led to some lackluster training and stuff yep. like that. So then Dana comes in and he's pissed off because he's hearing guys complaining about it. Maybe even some whispers of guys being like, "Well, I'm not going to fight for free." Yeah, uh, things like that. Which, again, hard to blame anybody for not wanting to do that. Uh, but then Dana comes in, gives a speech, kind of gets in their ass a little bit, and um, kind of motivates a lot of guys into being like, "No, I want this opportunity, no matter what uh, I have to do to get it, even if that means fighting for free." Now, this interview probably does not hold up like at all today considering the ongoing debate with fighter pay and um, fighters that have come out and spoke against uh, fighter pay because of that, this interview might not necessarily hold up um, since that is kind of a big sticking point for a lot of fans now, but uh, for its time, it was, it left a huge impact and um, it's probably one of the most memorable speeches in TV history, in my opinion, if I'm being honest. Oh yeah. hundred percent, man. Uh, And I do have one other small little detail from Tough One that I just had to mention because we talked about how the show goes on to humanize these fighters and what all goes in when they're not fighting and all the chaos that can go on and transpire in the house. And really, it's two back-to-back ones here, one from The Ultimate Fighter Season 1 and one from Season 5. So I'm just going to kind of mesh them together, and we'll just discuss uh, how the fighters would just piss each other off, essentially. Season one, Josh Koscheck and Chris Lieben absolutely hated each other. Hated each other. Mm-hmm. So much so, Josh Koscheck goes into the house with a water hose and drenches Chris Lieben in his sleep, 
Chris, of course, had just came off of a night of drinking. He's getting a little rowdy. Yeah. He had just went to bed. Chris gets so pissed off at Koscheck, he hunts him down in the house, smashes the glass in the front door. He's got blood dripping down his hand. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "Where's Koscheck? Where's Koscheck?" And it was just an absolute meltdown. And it showed being trapped in houses together, man. These guys are gonna piss each other off. And to segue into the other moment, and then we'll kind of discuss both. Season five, we see a backyard brawl between Marlon Sims and Noah Thomas. This got so bad and so out of control that Dana White kicked both contestants off of the season. And it really just makes you wonder, first off, how much went on that we didn't see on TV that they just didn't want to show because it got too out of hand or whatnot. And it's crazy how stuff like this didn't happen more. Or do you think two moments so prominent such as these that got so out of hand, so out of line, that maybe behind the scenes producers and such are telling these guys like, hey, we know you're going to get mad at each other. You're going to get old with one another. But you can't be doing shit like this that can really put like lives in jeopardy on a television show. Well, for the season one moment, I can speak a little more on. So it was actually, it was Koscheck, but it was also Bobby Southworth. Yeah. And um, Lieben was kind of a guy, he would get drunk and he would kind of run his mouth a little bit. Um, just talk and talk and talk. And I guess these guys got so annoyed by it uh, that they ended up kind of getting into some verbal spat where Bobby Southworth uh, essentially called Lieben like a fatherless bastard. I and I think that Chris Levin's dad might not have been in his life or something. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, because of that, that kind of made Levin very emotional. So he decided he was going to sleep outside. He didn't even want to sleep in the house. Yeah. And then Bobby and uh, Koscheck, uh, they come up with the hose and kind of spray around him a little bit. And that's what leads to uh, Levin going on a rampage through the house. Um, Dana actually there, they, were, they weren't sure what to do. Um, him, he met with the coaches, Randy and Chuck, and they're like, well, I don't think you should kick these guys off. And all this sounds like both guys were kind of, you know, because Lieben at this point had a reputation for being a bit of a shit talker as well. So yeah. he didn't kind of do him any favors in this situation by um, – it was kind of a repeated incident for him. Right. But uh, what ended up being, I guess, the, the, the ruling was Dana said, all right, Josh and uh, – Josh and um, Chris are going to fight to yep. see who stays. And Josh Koscheck won, so Chris Lieben was uh, off the show. He would come back, uh, I believe, due to a fighter injury. I think it was Nate Quarry's injury. Yep. Um, another guy, another notable name from season one. He's the first guy to ever fight for a title that fought on the Ultimate Fighter, I'm pretty sure. Kind of a fun note there. Fun fact. Uh, yep. But uh, when he got injured, I believe that's when uh, Lieben came back on the show um, for a short amount of time. But I can't speak too much to the season five incident, but at least for that season one incident, I will say that like all of what I just said is included in the episode. I mean, the yeah. Colin had the fatherless bass, like all this stuff. It doesn't make Bobby and Josh look great. And I have a hard time believing that they really kept anything out because, I mean – some of that stuff is a little much to be. I mean, it was showing Chris tearing the door or breaking yeah. through the glass. That's uh, his hand blood, open, blood right everywhere. Um, I don't know much about the season five moment, 
I do kind of remember seeing Dana being like, you guys are gone. But I don't know if it – do you think to you did it feel like maybe they were kind of trying to work around, okay, what can we show on TV, what can we not? Because for season one, 2005 is a whole different time than yeah. 2021 when it comes to what you can show on TV and what you can't. I mean, I, when I was watching the first season, they were throwing around gay slurs and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, like it was nothing. Um, and today you just wouldn't see that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that incident or not. Yeah, I mean, I just think both of these types of severe incidents are things that we don't see as much as the seasons progress onward throughout the years. And I think it's because of an evolution of not only the show, but the sport, um, the evolution of just the fighters and the mentality that they have, the evolution of just the times that we live in as things progress onward. Uh, so it's just crazy to look back at some of these wild moments that have happened. And it really segues into another insanely wild moment when our boy Quentin Rampage Jackson dead ass rips a door right off of the hinges, punches holes through it, headbutts it, elbows it, kicks it, you name it. He landed every MMA move on that poor door. Rest <laughs> in peace because he got so pissed off. I think it was after one of his fighters lost or it was after a training session, one of the two. Mm -hmm. And, man, Rashad just let him have it, and he just gets so mad. He storms off, smashes that door down. And that's still probably one of the just most memorable clips of the show's history for the short time that it happened. I mean, do you just remember seeing him go in on that door? <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, uh, the, even despite what I said earlier, kind of my hot take <laughs> yeah. about this season, I mean, that is the defining – one of the defining moments of The Ultimate Fighter. And – um, it's just so funny that like that door was nothing to him oh. like that. And I don't know what kind of material was used on that door, but it wasn't rampage Jackson proof. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> that thing and, was um, made out of paper mache. And it just showed how heated the rivalry would be. I mean, a lot of times these two guys personalities were to kind of joke with each other and shit, but you see something like that and you're like, Oh, this is serious. Yeah. I mean, this isn't just for cameras, you know, this is real. Um, so yeah, it definitely worked. It was effective. <laughs> oh yeah, man. And that, that competitive fire really just brews after weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm -hmm. And another huge moment of season 10 that is so unique, so cool in the show's history, Kimbo Slice announced as a contestant. And it's so cool. I remember actually watching this as a little kid. I forget the, I think this was 2008, 2009. So I was about 10 or 11 at the time when this one, so a little older, a little more into the sport at this period. And Kimbo Slice, the street yard brawler on YouTube, posting all the backyard fights. He's just knocking people out cold left and right with his powerful uh, punches. And they bring out 15 contestants, right? And you're thinking, well, wait a minute here. We can't do a tournament if there's only 15 people. It's not even. you got to have 16. Dana White comes out and says, now if you guys notice – we're missing one person. And long behold, they open that door that eventually got destroyed by Rampage. <laughs> and out comes Kimbo Slice, man. And I just remember everyone just like, just a huge sigh. They could not believe that this huge mm -hmm. superstar, internet sensation at the time, was coming over to their neck of the woods to try out MMA. And uh, I remember Rampage going, oh, I'm getting him on my team. And it was just like, we had never really seen big 
name fighters on the Ultimate Fighter. This show is about building these newcomers and to build right. characters for when they inevitably make it to the show. Kimbo Slice Man, he was arguably a bigger name than freaking Rashad <laughs> Evans was at this time. Kimbo Slice yeah. was an absolute superstar. And when they announced him, it was so monumental. And although he didn't go on to win the season, he would go on to have a couple of fights in the UFC, some very memorable moments and bouts. And, uh, man, just what a legend he is. Rest in peace to Big Kimbo Slice. What were your kind of thoughts on this when he debuted on The Ultimate Fighter? Yeah, rest in peace, Kimbo Slice. I mean, I I remember, you know, again, I growing up was more of a rest, professional wrestling WWE yeah. kid. But um, I remember my knowing a lot about Kimbo Slice because he was in the uh, Drake and Josh Christmas movie. Yeah, <laughs> man. That. Yeah. So um, that was kind of my entryway into the kind of Kimbo mania, but I knew who he was. I'm pretty sure he even recognized him when he was on the, sh- the movie. I was like, oh, that's Kimbo Slice. Yeah. Which is crazy because this is a guy who was a, a street fighter essentially and uh, really just became so popular on the internet that he got signed to be a professional fighter by a lot of yeah. big promotions, um, including the UFC. And now I don't want to speak, you know, I don't, I'm not going to speak ill to that. I mean, he seems like a great guy. His inclusion in the show was definitely for ratings and it worked for that right. reason. And you could see a lot of those fighters. Sure. There was a lot that were in all, but you saw guys like Brendan Schaub and some of these other guys, they were like, but they were chomping at the bit yeah. to get at this guy. They wanted to be the guy to beat Kimbo Slice. Cause I think a lot right. of guys were aware that Kimbo's fighting abilities might not have been up to snuff with the rest of the group. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, man. And it really was just that extra bit of ratings. You're going to have this ultra-tough guy come in. How is he going to fare with these full-on you know, mixed martial artists that have been doing this for years and years? And while his career in MMA was short-lived in terms of the number of fights, he really did just put on some shows, some sloppy, some – better uh but man what a legend i couldn't talk about the ultimate fighter without mentioning kimbo being brought onto the show mm-hmm. um so another one this is more so just a quick little snippet because there's only so much you can talk about on this one but if you've seen the ultimate fighter you know the legendary quote just let me bang bro just <laughs> let me bang julian lane on season 16 it was crazy when we were not, um before we started recording, you're like, what? That actually happened that far into the show, and I was shocked as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian, of course, didn't go on to win the show or anything. He would go on to have a couple of bouts in the UFC during that Reebok era, and there's not much you can speak on of this outside of kind of relating to some of those other moments where you see what goes on in this house and the raw emotion that can just build up with these guys because at the end of the day, they're humans as well, not just guys that get into a cage. And it showed right here, let me bang, bro. Yes, it did. Put that on a shirt. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, so we're going up one more season, season 17, Uriah Hall. This dude was decimating everyone on that show. But there's one specific knockout that is one of the most devastating knockouts in UFC History, not just Ultimate Fighter history, the entire history of the 28 years that this company has existed. When he lands that spinning back kick to the face 
absolutely flatlining his opponent, stiff as a board. Do you remember just the hype of Uriah Hall during this season? And it's so crazy that he went on to not even win that season but lose to Kelvin Gastelum in the finals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I spoke about this uh, probably just recently on this podcast. When he was fighting. Uriah Hall's yeah. fight with Sean Strickland, and we were talking, and, uh, we were talking about that. But um, the hype for Uriah Hall was just unreal. I mean, this is a guy who – this is what – it's kind of the the th- the thrill and agony, whatever I forget what you said it was called. Is it the thrill and the agony? Is that what it's thrill called? Thrill and the agony. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, for Uriah Hall, um, he kind of got both ends of that by being um, shown through this show. Uh, he was given a huge platform right away. People thought this was the guy to beat Anderson Silva, who was on his yep. legendary run. Um, and this is and that's great exposure for a guy who's never fought in the UFC before. But those are unreal expectations. So when Uriah inevitably wasn't quite able to meet those expectations, I mean, at least as of today, he's still going. He's a top 10 middleweight, but he's not the world beater that we thought he might be. And because of that, now he's kind of looked at as a bit of a disappointment um, as kind of a waste of potential. And because of that, that's kind of the agony side where he was kind of given these unreasonable expectations. And what I think is an even bigger story here, and I, Uriah Hall, you're doing great, man. Keep it up. Like, I don't want to – I'm not trying to add to it. I'm just saying that that's what people are going to say. What I think is a bigger story here is he lost to Kelvin Gastelum, who was the very last guy picked in the season fun fact so because of that i mean to me that's a bigger story kelvin gastelum being a kind of a guy who nobody had any expectations for and he beats the guy that was supposed to beat anderson silva kelvin gastelum just a guy who when you least expect him to perform the guy will show you a thing or two it's crazy too man because you look back Kelvin, again, picked last. No one thought he was going to be anything on that show. The coaches, even in terms of like taking notes on him, were just like, ah, I just don't see much in him. You go on to see what he's done in his career, and he had that amazing fight with Israel Adesanya for the uh, the championship, and just he went on this skid, but then fights back. It's like when this guy's back is against the wall, Kelvin Gaslam can perform to his very utmost potential. And he's such a great story, and I'm so glad you brought that piece up about him and uh, Uriah Hall uh, during that moment and during Season 17. And I'm just segueing directly into it. No, we got one last moment to talk about, then we get on to the champions. And we already talked about it, so I guess it's not much to speak on. The snake in the grass moment. Conor McGregor, Cody Garbrandt, TJ Dillashaw, everything. Conor McGregor essentially planted the seed for one of the biggest rivalries in the bantamweight division's history by dropping Mm -hmm. one single line here in what turned out to be dropping facts. I mean, Cody Garbrandt went on during his buildup with TJ to say, like, you know what? It turns out Conor McGregor was actually right during season 22. So I just had to bring that up and honestly just kind of want to get some last-second thoughts from you that we didn't touch on earlier. Uh, I just want to actually use my time to shine a light on uh, the best quote in ultimate fighter history from uh, Mr. Chael P. Sonnen, 
uh, in his season with uh, Vanderlei Silva, tough three Brazil. He was on there and uh, when <laughs> Vanderlei's got the mouthpiece in and he's English is not his first language. No. So he's, he's kind of mumbling. He's like, where now? Where now? Where now? <laughs> yes. And then uh, he just says that like over and over. Not sure what he's trying to say. And Chael's like, calm down. Come on. Come on. Calm down. And then he shoves him and he's like, I can't let you get close. Now, if you guys ever played Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat growing up like I did, it came off like a like an intro <laughs> for one of the fighters in that game where it's like Scorpion comes on there. He's like, I can't let you get close. Yeah. And uh, I just love it. And Chael sunned it into flip-flops with the jeans. That's the um, best just, part about the whole clip, man. The <laughs> flip-flops, the jeans. Then he freaking takes down Vanderlei. They start punching each other. Everybody goes on about him. I'm glad you brought that up. I see it now in my notes. I totally skipped over that part. Dude, legendary moment of the Ultimate Fighter. And that was one of those international seasons as well. So one that didn't quite get as much shine as all these other seasons. Yeah, it's a moment to me that definitely um, – it definitely over – like the whole – the season as a whole – Nobody really knows much about it. It's one of those international right. seasons like you talked about where they get even less viewers than kind of the American seasons were at the time. But that moment is so viral today. It's such a meme today that it's became one of the biggest moments, one of the funniest moments in the Ultimate Fighter history. Oh, 100%, man. Thank you for catching my little slip up there. <laughs> no, you're good. So now on to the snake in the grass portion, our last little moment here. Just kind of any more last-second thoughts on that moment and what it inevitably turned into that we didn't touch on earlier. I, I think I said everything I need to say about that. I mean, it's not much to it. It, it did kind of plant the seeds, and it was just interesting when you go back and watch it, considering the, where they were at the time as a group uh, for Cody, TJ, and Uriah, how they were kind of a family. And you got Connor kind of trying to plant these seeds of dissension, and then it ended up coming true. Mystic Mac. Yeah. He predicts Mystic Mag, things. it ain't just fights, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, absolutely so crazy. It's kind of a time capsule now to go back. It's like, wow, that's so interesting. Like, I wonder how he – I wonder if that just everybody was like – did everybody know that that was happening? Right. Was Uriah, right. Was Uriah aware of this? Like, uh, I'm so interested in, like, learning more about, like, how Connor even knew that. Now, I know Connor has an unreal – um I guess research department with him or whatever or he does yeah. his research on these fighters and really digs deep into the personal details of their lives when it comes to trash talking to really get in their heads. Maybe that's all it was. Maybe he just found a little something about TJ and Dwayne or it just happened to be right. Or more what I'm thinking is that this was just kind of being whispered around at the time around MMA. Yeah. I'm so glad you kind of just said, like, it is like a time capsule now that you look back on it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, now, there's moments and moments for days that we could discuss over the course of 28-plus seasons, but that's all I got time for on this podcast because, <laughs> Noah, we got to talk about the champions. We can't discuss tough without talking about some of the people that have came from this show. There have been 11 champions that have went from the Ultimate Fighter to become UFC uh, gold belt holders, and I'm going to rally off just all 11 here, and then maybe we'll just touch on some that stand out to us the most, have shocked us the most, so on and so forth. So here we go. Forrest Griffin, obviously the tough mm -hmm. one season winner. 
Uh, then we got Rashad Evans, Michael Bisbing, Matt Sarah, and one of the biggest upsets of all time. I'm sure we'll touch on it. Tony Ferguson became an interim champion, but nevertheless had the gold belt. Carla Esparza, the first ever women's strawweight champion. Kamaru Usman chasing down GSP right now in that welterweight GOAT status. Robert Whitaker won the Ultimate Fighter Smashes season, as I mentioned earlier. TJ Dillashaw, who didn't even win his season of the Ultimate Fighter. He was a runner-up on season 14. Goes on to arguably come, yeah, one of the best bantamweights of all time, if not the best, depending on who you Mm -hmm. ask. Then you have another runner-up in Rose Namajunas, who lost in the finals to Carla Esparza. We see where she is now, the first ever woman to win her belt back. So a two-time champion in the same weight class. And then the least notable one, and this is no slouch, Nico Montano uh, won the inaugural flyweight championship uh, during that season. And it's kind of just awkward, and it's a very love-hate relationship there between Nico and the UFC and what all happened. But no, any standouts there in that list of 11? It's a very select group when you look at all these fighters that have still came into the UFC, even if they didn't win. <laughs> You're right. And uh, there's only, I'm going to only touch on a couple here. So, um, Forrest Griffin, the guy that obviously nobody thought he was in the most stacked division in the UFC. You know, it's the division the UFC prided itself on for such a long time, the light yep. heavyweight division. And for Forrest Griffin to be able to get that belt from Rampage Jackson, nobody really saw that coming. And even the lead-up to it, he had to beat Shogun Hua, who at when Pride closed its doors, Shogun Hua looked like an absolute unstoppable force of nature. Yep. And then he comes into the UFC, and Forrest Griffin, kind of the everyman, the – you know, he's good. The blue-collar guy, too. You yeah, know. you know, he's got a bit of, like, I'm good, but I'm not great, you know. And um, he wins that fight and then goes on to win the title. Just a very good feel-good moment there. Also, Matt Sarah, his season being very, very notable. He won along with another fella named Travis Luter, yep. who both – got awarded title shots for winning their seasons. Matt Sarah got his title shot against George St. Pierre, Travis Luter getting his title shot against Anderson Silva. Um, man, what a tough – is that really a prize uh, for Matt Sarah, though? Capitalizes on the opportunity, one of the biggest upsets in UFC history, while Travis Luter misses weight, doesn't even – can't even win the belt, and then gets destroyed by Anderson Silva. So uh, the thrill and the agony. I'm going to keep touching on that. The thrill and the agony, baby. Yeah. Um, but for Matt Sarah to get that win, that was uh, – uh, you you remember when we got Fight Pass uh, our freshman yeah. year of college, and I had never seen, like, any of these events, right? I knew a little bit about some of the big fighters, but I was like, I'm going to go back and start at, like, UFC 50 – and I'm just going to watch through. And I remember UFC 69, I believe, is when Matt Sarah beats GSP. And I was, I we would sometimes I would be sitting there watching them in our dorm room. Yeah. And you would come in and you would go like, oh, what event are you on or whatever? And I was like, oh, uh, GSP's fighting a Matt Sarah, so I'm pretty sure he's going to smash him. <laughs> and then, uh, I, then you, just, Dom's just sitting there waiting for my yeah, yeah. reaction. And I saw Matt Sarah dropping him, and I'm like, huh? Like, what? 
And he dropped them like, and he taps the strikes. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah. I got to live that almost like I was watching it live. So that was, that, that felt very good. I, I loved, man, I, I missed that time when I didn't, I didn't get, like, I was still, I was really into it. Yeah. But I hadn't spoiled, like, myself to all these results and everything, like, studying that hard. I was just watching the fights and had no idea who was going to win or lose. I was so upset when Rich Franklin lost to Anderson Silva. Hurt hurt me so much at the time. And that's just like, and I'm watching this in 2016, like as if it's live. Yeah. Um, exactly. so I, 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 that, it's such a weird note, but um, those two stick out to me for winners that became champions. And even the runner ups, like that's just, that's very cool that, that if anything, that kind of elevates the ultimate fighter where not only, Always do the people who win the seasons pan out, and sometimes the people who don't win in their seasons that doesn't mean that they're necessarily never going to make it. You know, there's a lot of growing you do after the season, so it's important to kind of really, really take note of these fighters, really um, get the what's Dana always say on Dana White looking for a fight. He's like, I'm looking for the next Conor McGregor, the next Ronda Rousey, the next Robbie Lawler. that's what you don't know who you might be listening to on the show, you know, even if they kind of flounder out after a fight or two. Yeah. I love that. You mentioned the two runner ups there. We look at what TJ's done, what Rose has done. And one more that I just want to touch on, obviously they're all great, but Kamaru Usman, man, winning his season, that was the black zillions versus ATT American top team. And at the time, yes, he was dominant, made it look easy, but who would have thought, that he is now on the verge to chase GSP in this welterweight goat talk. And honestly, like he's crack, he's starting to crack up to where there's top 10 greatest of all time list, man. I mean, Kamaru mm-hmm. Usman truly is, if you want to look at all round body of work right now, because there's still plenty that are active on this list, Kamaru man is at the top of that list of this select group of fighters. And he's really on pace for some historical stuff. And to see that that came from a guy in the Ultimate Fighter just goes to show, like, yeah, it is this, uh, you know, ranky-dank reality TV show. There's some legit talent that is comes from this, and hopefully starting with the new season will continue to come from this. So I had to shout out Kamara Usman there. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. Well, that brings us to where we are today, my friend. Mm-hmm. And I guess we got to close out this episode with just giving a couple thoughts on what we're thinking about this Ultimate Fighter Season 29, the reboot, Team Alexander Volkanovsky versus Team Brian Ortega. Obviously, those two coaches were set to clash back in March for the featherweight championship of the world. Volkanovsky, unfortunately, tests positive for COVID, so the fight gets delayed. Little does he know there's silver linings and everything because now he's the coach of the Ultimate Fighter, the reboot season against another great competitor, Brian Ortega. A lot of mutual respect here, but we're seeing as it gets ready, and now that the season first episode is aired, by the time you guys are watching this episode, they're starting to get a little sick of each other. There's some, there's some heat that's brewing up. So I'm really curious to see how it'll play out during the season. I can't wait for when this fight actually happens. I'm so excited for it. And another twist, another wrench into the formula here. They're doing this during a global pandemic in COVID, by the way. So uh, just a couple final thoughts here, Noah, on this new season that we're about to get going here. 
Yeah, I'm excited to watch it. It's going to be my first time watching a season of The Ultimate Fighter live as it's airing. Um, so I'm excited about it. Uh, the coaches are good. I'm very excited for that fight, Volkanovski and Ortega. Um, not a ton of bad blood. You're right. They are. You, you, you noticed that um, there are some maybe some bad bloods brewing on the show. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, it's – if anything, I, I really like this – coaching matchup because these are two guys that are very skilled they're very good at kind of coaching i mean they have very good skill sets i mean alexander volkanovsky is kind of good at everything but right. striking's really good wrestling really good ortega's got the jiu-jitsu specialty so you're going to be these fighters are really going to be getting very different coaching experiences based on what camp they're kind of in whether they're on yep. team volkanovsky or team ortega which i always like to see that kind of difference in coaching you know if you're on one team you might have a much better experience than on another um and the fact that these two guys they don't tend to be super vocal mm -hmm. which means that they're not going to overshadow mo what's most important which is the fighters yep 100 percent couldn't agree but more. Very excited for it. Make sure to check it out. ESPN Plus. I'll be interested to see how this season does airing on ESPN Plus. I know we had a lot of hopes of some grander uh, comeback. You know, maybe yeah. a bigger rivalry, maybe on ESPN the network. But overall, I'm not going to complain. I'm happy to see it back, and hopefully, uh, this is the start of another great run for the Ultimate Fighter. Couldn't have said it better, my friend. All right. Well, I think that's going to kind of wrap it up here for this edition of the state of the ultimate fighter. Dominic, you did a great job leading this one. I appreciate you taking the reins for this episode. I know it wasn't easy to switch roles like that, but I knew that you had it in you. Um, but until um, I guess we meet again, now that, that that's going to lead me into kind of the rest of the week, Friday. This is going to be a preview episode again, this time for uh, UFC Vegas 28. 28. Is that uh, correct? It is correct. 28, baby. Regardless. Okay. Regardless. Um, it, so it's going to be Augusto Sakai versus Jarzinho Rosenstroik. And uh, it's a big matchup at heavyweight. Two guys looking to efforts. But until then, Dominic, tell the good people where they can find you on social media. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, at Deasley14. Believe this video podcast got a little jumbled here at the end, but good thing we're closing it out. <laughs> That's uh, why I'm laughing. <laughs> and you can find the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, at B-A-J underscore MMA podcast. I got to get the hell out of here, Noah. Take us away. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if you guys want to find me, uh, the, it's right there. It's right where my name is. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, at NTBaker underscore. Uh, there's a link in my bio for the link tree that has all the platforms the podcast is on. So make sure to check that out. But that's it. We're out. We'll see you all on Friday.